everybody, St. Paul here. Welcome to episode 45 of Music on the Run. Today's guest, my best friend on the planet, Joey Finger. He's next on Music on the Run. Before we get started here, do me a favor. Wherever you got this podcast, make sure you subscribe, give us a rating, and if you have time and like what you're hearing, make sure you write a review. It really helps us get the word out so we can have a lot more people coming to the party. Hey everybody, I'm St. Paul Peterson. Prince gave me that nickname, and I've been lucky enough to tour with people like the Steve Miller Band, Kenny Loggins, Peter Frampton, Donny Osmond, to name a few. And when I'm not playing music, I love to run. And this is a podcast about how we stay healthy on the road, physically, mentally, and with our families. Welcome to Music on the Run. Hey everybody, St. Paul Peterson here and welcome to episode 45 of Music on the Run. Man, I can't believe we made it to episode 45 and this is going to be our first live interview since the start of the pandemic, so I'm excited about that. We are in the Peterson family basement as you can see. Man, we've had over 60 years of rehearsals and music in this place, so I'm looking forward to having my next guest here. Before we get to him, uh, I'm continuing with the gratitude segment. I want to highlight a couple of the Music on the Run patrons. And you're going, what is a patron? Our patrons financially help us put on this podcast, and they get some goodies in return. If you'd like to help us continue to put on this podcast, please go to www.patreon.com forward slash Music on the Run podcast. And today I want to do a big shout out to our $10 a month patrons my geezer of gear running brother, Bill Nolan. Thank you so much for your continued patronage. And of course, Audrey Johnson. Thank you, Audrey. We're, you might have been our first patron ever. You'll have to confirm that for me, but thank you so much. All right, time to get to our guest. My guest today is a total chameleon. He's a drummer, a producer, a songwriter, a tour manager, uh, a creative and musical director. He does it all. He's played or recorded with the Osmonds, Brian White, Boss Skaggs, David Sanborn, to name a few. He happens to be my best friend on planet Earth. Please welcome Joey Finger. Hi, brother man. Hello. How are you, brother? Good. I'm so glad that you're here. We've got our handheld mics. We are in person. We are talking. We are vaccinated. We are, uh, we are here. Thank Happy you. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Everybody. Man, are you kidding Appreciate me? It. It took me only 45 episodes to get you on this podcast, but <laughs> be, being fair to me, you just moved back to Minneapolis, didn't you? I did, and I'm really happy to say it's uh, much more enjoyable in the summer here than uh, Las Vegas. What is it, about 120 in Vegas right now? Um, you can die going to your mailbox. <laughs> <laughs> so this kind of worked out interestingly enough. Uh, you moved here with your family, and but for the last year and a half, tell me what's been going on. In your life? Um, you know, Las Vegas uh, was really hit hard. Yeah. I mean, uh, let's face it. I mean, any place that's uh, engineered for large, large groups of people is going to take a bigger hit than, you know, a regular community. A lot of people basically watched COVID happen on TV and it didn't affect them so much as uh, all of a sudden there's just no shows. There's nothing for us to go do. Uh, other than what we can generate from, you know, our own homes with our friends and a lot of the stuff we 
did together was like the Funk Fridays, soul saving. Right. I mean, it was like, oh, good, I get to express myself musically. I mean, thank you, you know, uh, for everybody that just wouldn't give up. Um, I just it really tested people uh, to see to see what it was that they were passionate about and. Um, I was one of the lucky ones. I had a place for, to practice and a place to play and record. And so I feel grateful about that. But it's, uh, it's been interesting trying to make things happen um, in this environment. So, right. so you, you were out there for the entire pandemic. Then you moved home with your family. What's it like to be home? Man, I home... It, is one of those words that gets abused, <laughs> and it's this is real home. Um, people think that a home is just someplace where you park your car. Um, it's where you, uh, it's where your heart is. It's where you park your heart. You know, I mean, I honestly, when I got here, um, I knew I would be, you know, a little bit more involved because I had um, close people that weren't necessarily, you know. Um, as concerned because a family bridge, you know, they, they're willing to take a little bit more risk to spend time together and say, Hey, you know, if you guys are safe and we're, you know, we'll be able to hang in small groups. And that really, really, um, that made a difference coming here. And all of a sudden we were able to kind of feel like we were more involved, but it is a great feeling to be here and a great feeling just to be, um, just feel more alive. Well, you you moved away 20, what, 20 years ago? 1996. Ooh, 25 years ago. How's yeah. my math doing today? Um, you've been to quite a few different places. L.A., Los Angeles, Nashville, um, back to L.A. Uh, I did a little short run in uh, Aspen, Colorado. Oh, that's right. I almost forgot about um, that. I'm an avid skier i really like to ski and i i uh, got my instructor certificate so i spent a lot of time um just wanting to have that life and it was there was a duality about it it was really quite fun um get up early and meet a, a cast of characters to go and you know teach them how to ski and then um go back home and take a little shut eye and then go to the club and play jazz all night uh, i played in a club out there that was uh, uh Strictly a jazz club, but uh, just a five-star restaurant, so mm. it uh, it was quite fun. So. Well, I can't wait to talk about your entire journey. I mean, you've played with so many different people, but I think I'd like to focus in uh, on your career and what makes your career, what has made your career from the time you moved until we're sitting here when you're back home. And we'll talk a little bit more about that, but I think it's important for our listeners and viewers to know our history. You and I go back probably to this basement from when we were under 10 years old. We weren't necessarily hanging back then, but give the scenario of how we know each other. My brother brought me over here and I think it was, uh, we walked in here and there was a drum set right about a little bit more to the left than facing the other, other way. And, uh, there was a band rehearsing down here and, you know, your sister Patty, your brother Ricky were playing in the band. And I walked in and Ricky's like, oh, you just missed Paul. <laughs> and I'm like, OK, I'd love to meet him, you know, and just little kid. So he's like, 
I kind of started looking around and I spotted your skateboard over there. So I spent the, a bunch of time out here, <laughs> right up and down the hill on your skateboard before I met you. But uh, sorry about that. I don't think I broke anything. But uh, no, but I could um, tell someone used it. <laughs> well, you were off playing baseball somewhere, and uh, so we had a near miss in this basement, and then uh, um, eventually I was able to, you know say hello to you and say, hey, I'm John's brother, my brother John, uh, great guitar player, singer, worked with all all different kinds of people in Minneapolis and, you know, fortunate enough to get me involved with you and your family. I mean, he's really the link that created this whole thing for me. Wow. I remember more so when we were young adults and we got reintroduced. You had been working around town playing drums with different people like i remember the band kleenex hi i'm joe finger i play in kleenex kill me now <laughs> what a terrible name for a band i'm just saying uh you play yeah, but with it was wait now let's let's make sure clean okay it's just real witty here c-l-e-a-n with yeah. a x like x-rated Ooh, wow you are such a like led zeppelin boy. uh iron butterfly Clean X. Yeah. Well, so that's when you and I kind of got reacquainted, and then the bond between us was like brothers from another mother. Immediately, and uh, you and I would do things like, well, we play. We weren't necessarily in a lot of bands together, although Not my at memory first. is... At first, it was like I would come see you, you would come see me, right. and then we would disappear and be regular people um, uh, on that scale. Uh, on a racquetball court, if I don't uh, oh, I remember yes. properly. So we would, okay, so <laughs> that's part of our journey. It, it, since this is music on the run, that's something that we would do. Um, we were workout buddies for yeah, probably a lot of our lives, and you've always egged me on, come on, come on, and then I do the same for you. I think I, mean, I bothered you more than the, egged you on. I don't know. Just like little competition, on, just a little bit. Oh, you and yes, I, I were brothers. <laughs> In every aspect. It's come like, on. and then I just, you know, I wouldn't play things for a long time, and I did go and we played racquetball, and I have the world's longest <laughs> arms. If you are not watching this, I think I have a wingspan of about 37 feet, and it really pissed you off when I would be able to get every shot on the racquetball court. The normal human being takes four or five or six steps to cross the court, Paul takes two. Thank you. <laughs> That's very, very it's true. It's like a giant stride, if you will. Just and then the arm happens to help a lot too. So I, uh, I was aggravated. I think I smashed a couple of rackets. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I just I, I needed a sponsorship at that point in uh, racquetball rackets. <laughs> just because you and I have to leave for a golfing trip in about 45 minutes, so disappointed. I'm going to get too. into the bulk of this interview, which is fascinating to me. I watched, of course, your career my entire life with. You know, so much interest because we are brothers and and um, also because you're incredibly talented. And it just astounds me at all the different things you're talented at. You never must get bored because you, you do so many different things. So walk us through your first departure here from Minneapolis 25 years ago in 1996. You went to L.A. Did you? Is that correct? That's, the first That's place correct. Time? All right. So yep. did you have a gig? lined up or did you go god i hope this is going to turn into something what was that i was i was playing in minneapolis and i had made my kind of my rounds with the what would be called at that time the best bands in town Mm -hmm. i was 
really fortunate. Um, ended up on stage with just some of the greatest players. Um, Rob Arthur from the Peter Frampton Band, David Barry from uh, currently in The Voice um, and um, formerly with Janet Jackson and Cher and right. people like that. And, um, I mean, just to, to name a couple, I mean, the horn sections, all the people that were so just unbelievably great. I was playing and I had what I figured kind of topped out on the local scene. Um Prince was doing a lot of work in town, and some of us had little exposure. Some made great uh, leaps and bounds with his camp. Uh, and I had gotten to the part where I thought, I'm stagnating. I'm not, um, I'm not growing as a player. I want to see other places. I want to experience other markets. So um, just coincidentally, a dear friend of ours, uh, Jamie Chez, mm. uh Rest his soul. He called me and he said, man, buddy, I got a opening spot for Dave Matthews band with a band called Boxing Gandhi's. And uh, OK, that's better than Kleenex. That's better than Kleenex. Um, so he said, I have some local work here in L.A. that I have to sub out. And I know you've been talking about checking things out out here. You can come. You can stay at my place. You can. You um, if you and I'll just put you on these gigs, and I'm like, well, that's pretty much ideal from just a sampling, you know. So I went back to the Stud Brothers that I was playing Mick Sterling and the Stud Brothers, and I said, look, I'm really curious about this. I mean, where's it at? Where are we at? Where's everything at? And I had done a couple of records with them, and it was really interesting how it became obvious that it was time for me to move and check this out because. The opportunity for Mick to work with some other people looked good to him. And he said, look, let's just do this. Let's just make this, you know, change. And if it, you know, you, you want to come back, I mean, you know, let me know at that time. But don't go out there on a half of an idea. And I respect him so much for that conversation. And it put me in that I got to make this work category. You know what I mean? I wasn't necessarily fired or uh, I didn't necessarily you know, leave on bad terms. It was like, I'm, I'm really thinking it's a transitional time. So went out to LA with that attitude. And <laughs> of course I, Jamie says, all right, well, here's the place. It's a, you know, it's just one bedroom and uh, just take good care of it. And I'll be back in, you know, six weeks and we'll talk. They went out and they did three dates on the tour and they got canned. Oh, <laughs> baby. So, I mean, I had like this mini calendar of stuff. Uh, and I'm like, he comes back and goes, yeah, man, so uh, can I have my bed back and my, <laughs> my gigs back? And I'm like, okay. Yeah. So that was like a, like a major boot. Yeah. Um, and we made that work because we were such good friends, you sure. know. Yeah. So, um but I had already seen what I needed to see. The funny part is people like our, our buddy Bob Vandell, the drummer here in town, he was like, oh, so you're thinking about leaving town? Here, let me help you out. Let me help you pack. You know, he said he got me a gig out there <laughs> the day I arrived. And I really appreciated that, too. But I had instantly started playing with guys that were in the Tonight Show band, oh, wow. uh, Derek Murdoch, um, a guy named Joel Gaines from the uh, that played with the Platters and the OJs and bands like that. And So uh, people were vouching for you at this it, point. It okay. was amazing. I mean, it was 
a gift in many ways. Um, and I, um, I obviously went out there with something different because it went over. I didn't sound like L.A. drummers. I sounded like a Minneapolis guy. And Minneapolis was on fire at that time. So to come out and be funky and be able to play with that kind of a feel and have that stuff and keep it clean and not clutter it up and time uh, was such a Minneapolis, like, uh, you, you know a cat from Minneapolis when you hear him play. Time is first, you know. It just was in our, it was in our cereal, you know. So you're out there, you're a young guy. You've got some things that you're, some gigs that are coming in. You're having to move out. You got your own place. I take it that Jamie gave you the, the boot out we of there. We lived together. We just kind of oh, like. you lived together. You found Yeah, I, okay. I ended up on the floor. Um, and that's my hard luck, you know, L.A. story. So it's like, okay, I paid What's my dues. What's important, though, because. I paid my dues. I slept on the floor. I was right. starving. I was playing for food um, at one gig at Genghis Cohen. Great place to play for food, by the way. <laughs> really good. Yeah. But it was, it was a jazz gig. Wow. I got to play jazz. It was fun. So so you were you were a struggling musician making your way by connections, by your playing. The calls started coming in. Um, is it, what do you think, how would you describe, I guess, the, the life of a musician who has just moved to L.A. I mean, I don't think that it, there's any difference between 25 years ago and today because I have a lot of students who watch this too and they're like, I think they'll be fascinated by that part of the journey. What's got to be inside of you to be able to handle sleeping on the floor and waiting for the phone to ring and maybe it's not waiting. Maybe it's maybe it's you being proactive. Tell me a little bit about how you fought for your career out there. I think the truth in any situation is you can make something look so bad in your mind's eye. And then when you get there, I mean, if I told you, you need to go out and sleep on a floor somewhere and starve, um, you know, to make it, you're going to make this horrifying picture in your mind. And I was there and I was laughing and having a riot. I mean, the responsibility list was, was low. It was just be seen, be the best you can be, and don't stress. I mean, when you have nothing, you have nothing to lose, you know? So all I had, I, yeah. all I had was a drum set and a truck, and that's all I needed, you know? And a floor. Well, I, yeah, the floor. And yeah, a floor. It was, it was a good one. But, you know, <laughs> it got a little difficult, uh, you know, coming when Jamie would come back after a night at the club and have met somebody. Oh, interesting. There were long walks. <laughs> Lonely long walks. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Here's something else I want, I want to bring up. Now, you were a musician out there, but in those early days, did you have any side gigs? Were you doing anything else besides music to make ends meet? Nope. I was oh, okay. focused. I was completely focused on it. I didn't um, I didn't dive into the things that I had learned how to do here as a secondary income, which would be, you know, working on homes or, right. you know, building things with my hands and, you know. And you were 
lucky in not lucky. You were good at real estate from an early age. My family I exposed that. me to it. Yeah, there's you know I had five sisters and two brothers, big family like you. Right. So it was um, it was kind of an introduction. It's like, hey Joey, you want to learn how to do this? It's like, no. <laughs> well, you're going to need to know how. So I'll teach you how to do this. It was I was cheap labor, and finally my brother-in-law allowed me to make a little money at it, and um, that was great. But I realized in doing that that I didn't know that it would come and help me later. I just knew I realized it was allowing me to continue to develop, you know. But I didn't have an opportunity or didn't honestly didn't want to waste my time in L.A. trying to be something other than the reason I was there. Did you have money saved up before you went out there? So you had a little padding or I had some money. Um, I had um, I had actually bought a house here. And so when I left, um, I had some renters that were t- paying the rent there. So I, I lowered my my expectations as far as like how mo- how much money I had going out. I didn't have any payments. I didn't have any payments of any kind. I bought a truck that I could pay for. I didn't have a house payment. I you know I'm, Jamie was let me live there for nothing. So really, honestly. I had saved up a little bit of money, but I really never really had to touch it because I was able to work enough to continue to uh, buy Heineken. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, that was part of the deal. Oh, my, that was part of the game. My first going, session, uh, my first session in LA, I got a call from Chris Abraham. You remember Chris? I do. Okay. Yeah. Chris called me up and he said, "Look, hey, uh, we don't have any money." And that was like the first hell, yeah, yeah, that that's was the, like, that's the opening line. Yeah, that's the hello, hi, what's your name uh um in LA. So But you said yes. I I I was sitting on the on uh basically on the couch and doing nothing. I had my drum set and I so I went over there for Heineken and pizza. So you're in LA, you are uh, establishing yourself. When was it that you got your first Break. What would you consider your first break into the upper echelon of the music business? Um, playing with great people out there, you always felt like you were right on the verge. I would get, um, you know, opportunities. There was a there was a little bit of a scene out there. It was a name dropping thing, and it was like um, people that you know wanted the gig would do what they had to. There was espionage. You know, it's like trying to keep you from going anywhere. Nice. Um, but honestly, you're very, very responsible for what I would consider my first big break. You called me from Nashville. Ah, yeah. I want you to tell the story because this is, I want to hear your perspective on this. Well, it was very hot. It was one sunny, hot day in the Valley. Northridge, California. Yeah. And, uh, how much detail do you want? I was uh, standing, Um, standing there in my underwear uh, I would say to- five minutes or less. <laughs> Wait, maybe I was putting together uh, a computer desk in the valley, um, some assembly required, and I was on day two. Um, and so I got a call from our uh, host today, Mr. Paul Peterson, and uh, yourself. And uh, what are you doing right now <laughs> was the uh, opening line. I said, well, I'm just putting together this desk. What's going on? He goes, have you ever heard of a guy named Brian White? I said, nope. I have no idea who that is. Well, he's pretty major country star. Um, I'm in Nashville. I've been out here writing with him, and they're having trouble finding the right chemistry, the right drummer for this tour. 
Um, they're going out with Leanne Rimes, and it's like a co-headline. He's a big deal. He's got, you know, six number ones, and I remember the conversation well. And I said, well, what's the deal? And he goes, well, can you get to Nashville, like, tomorrow or maybe <laughs> even tonight? That. And I went, and I was standing there. It was so hot. I was in my underwear. Here. But, uh, you know, and it and just... Um, I kind of just went I looked at myself in the mirror and I went, am I ready to go try out for a band in Nashville right now? Um, I said, well, let me see what I can do. And uh, so I had a girlfriend at the time and she goes, oh, I love that guy. He sounds great. I'll, 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 I'll go run and get his records. So she ran to Target. I called somebody I knew from American Airlines and um, got on a red eye. And I literally had not heard the material. Um, I listened to it on the plane. And landed at about six o'clock. And you're not necessarily a country drummer. Not at all. Okay. I had never been in a country band in my life. I mean, so that qualifies as not a country drummer. Um, but the irony of it all is, after all is said and done, they weren't looking for a country drummer. Right. They had gone through every country drummer in Nashville, and that's that was the problem. Um, and uh, nobody really knew that in this uh, situation at this time in the situation. So I landed at about six o'clock in the morning and you were staying there with a friend of ours, Rick, Rick Barron, Rick Barron yeah. who concurred. I had to mention him for sure because he's a big huge, part of the story. Huge part of my he life. And I were just and sitting together and we're like two proud parents calling their <laughs> Yeah, it's like, hey, do you think he's ready? You know, you guys kind of teamed up uh, on that for sure. Rick's a big part of this opportunity as well. And you guys both told uh, Brian, I'm uh, I'm aware of that, you know, this guy could be your guy. So I, you know, And Brian was a big Prince fan. And he, I met him years earlier because he was up and coming country artist. Correct. And he, you know, we became friends then. I would go visit him on the road. I'd go stay at his house. That's how we got to this point. So continue. Right. So I got in uh, at six in the morning, took a cab, and you guys had been staying at a hotel somewhere on Old Hickory Road yep. uh, in Franklin. And um, I got out of the cab, and I remember thinking, oh, God, I'm glad I don't have to see anybody. I felt like death warmed over, you know. Um, and I was sporting a goatee and a mustache, and I had a leather jacket on. I'm walking around. And I'm like, this isn't really Nashville. I might have to change my appearance before I meet the artist. And you guys rolled up in Brian's car. And I met Brian. I met the musical director, Derek. Derek. You, Rick, you guys were going golfing and, and had an early tea time. And I'm like looking at him. Hey, that's the guy that's going to try off your band. I just kind of went. You know, it was like, uh, all right, well, there goes that. I didn't quite mention that part when we were on the way to pick you up, did I? Yeah. Anyways, so I, um, luckily for me, I was able to get a couple hours sleep and then the audition was like at 10 o'clock or something. So listen to the stuff a couple more times, show up. And man, that was the funniest audition I've ever been to in my life. And he, the first thing Brian does is say to me, look, we're really sorry, but we thought we had um, sound check this huge facility and full staging. I mean, sound stages, uh, six of them, I think they got in there for lighting, trussing, everything for the audition, but we didn't. We had to, we have this rigged in my 
garage down here, and, and they didn't even have a mic stand. They were hanging mics from the <laughs> ceiling like this. Yeah, so, <laughs> I Brian remember was that. singing into that, and I was playing on a drum set in the in the garage. And uh, man, I, I sat down. I said, "I don't, I don't care. This is actually making me more comfortable." And so he was like, "Great." I warmed up a little bit. You guys were talking out there, and I'm like. There's just no way this is going to happen because I've only really listened to this stuff. I haven't had a chance to really play it. Right. Um, so I thought, okay, whatever. So the garage door goes down, and it's like, all right. So, uh, and all of a sudden, the guitar player starts playing that James Brown lick for um, Shake Your Money Maker, mm -hmm. right? And I'm like going... These are like funk country guys. I mean, these are, I'm like going, well, I played that every day of my life. So you want me to play that? I'm just, I'm not saying this stuff. I'm like, I just started playing time. And I remember going, well, this is a good way to break the ice. Cause I know this stuff, you know? Right. And, uh, I remember looking over at Brian's foot and it was, it started off like this. We're going to take a little break from the interview right now because I want to tell you about a couple of really cool things. First of all, we're having so much fun with our weekly one-minute funk jams called Funk Friday. We've had so many world-class musicians on Funk Friday, including members of the Steve Miller Band, Fleetwood Mac, Daryl Hall and John Oates, Earth, Wind and Fire, just to name a few. You can check that out on all of our social media, but you can also see it on our YouTube channel. I also want to take this opportunity to thank all of our members who have supported us on Patreon. Don't know what Patreon is? Go to www.patreon.com forward slash music on the run podcast. And there you'll get all sorts of information on how you can financially help us produce this podcast. There are all kinds of incentives listed there on the website, and there are many different levels on how you can become involved. We could not put on this podcast without our patrons. All right, let's get back to the interview. I remember looking over at Brian's foot, and it, was, it started off like this. Got higher. It got higher and higher and higher and higher. And he was like, he was looking down because Brian was a little bit more, he was really listening. He yeah. wasn't about the social thing yet. He wanted to make sure he liked what he heard. And we we finished up that groove and it was a great vibe in the room. And uh, I remember then he looked at me and he goes, well, let's play this country shit real quick and get back to that. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, I just remember that as being, you know, a great memory. And then I, I departed, went back, and I was so tired, so tired. And I, so I laid back down in the hotel room, and you guys, mm -hmm. you know, stuck around or whatever. And the next thing I know is Derek George and Brian White crawled in bed with me and offered me the gig. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's... The humor that these guys have. <laughs> and the humor goes south from there. It's really strange, though. I mean, it's like, uh, how you doing? So what do you think about going on the road with us? Well, they were comfortable enough with us <laughs> that, that they knew that, you know, it wasn't a, 
It's not like what it sounds. It, I mean, it, it was funny. It was. It created a little bit of like. Ew. Wait, yeah. Do I want this gig? Yeah. Is, is this something we're going to do a lot? Is this? <laughs> is this the band meeting of my future? I mean. Um, and you got the gig. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was completely into. And I remember Baron and I just going. Yeah. Yeah. We were like, like it's very like cool. Crowd it was very, very, very point, cool yeah. memory. But my life changed right there. Um, Dude, there was like, dude, whatever you got, try to cover it, because um, we're we're heading out. We've got a, uh, we got two weeks of rehearsal, and then we're on the road. Yeah. And they gave me the calendar, and there were like two hundred and eighty dates in the next year, and right. I'm like going, okay, not mm-hmm. a lot of time for uh, anything but uh, playing drums. So and that was it. That was the beginning. That started, yeah. And then yeah. It, I, I got hooked up with Yamaha and Sabian, you know, Sabian cymbals, Yamaha drums, uh, Remo drumheads. So these drum are heads. endorsements that yeah. come with being able to get a big tour like that. So right. Yamaha drums, like the ones behind you. Yep. Um, Sabian cymbals, sticks, I suppose, and heads. And I all. had a really interesting stick company. They were made out of Kevlar. It called Mainline. They they've gone under since, but I, it was really in, uh, a cool product. Mm. Mm. So you're on the road doing arenas right. with, with Leanne Rimes and Brian My Moore. first show was here. At the Target, Target Center. Target Center. Yeah, I was New there. Year's Eve. I was there. My mom in the front row going, how great is that? <laughs> <laughs> See, Mom, I told you I could do this. Mom. Yeah, that's incredible. So how many years did you end up staying with Brian? I was with him for about uh, 14 years. Um, after a while... Um, things started to change and the, the organization, um, uh, the guy that was, uh, uh, the tour manager, Brinson Strickland, mm-hmm. who is just one of the most, you know, stand up kind of guys, one of, and, and fun to be around, yes, but is. business mm. is taken care of. I, I respected that so much about him and still do. Um, he's a manager. He's still currently managing, you know. Artists and doing general managing like uh, Clint Black, I think, is one of his clients, and um, and so he had moved on to that category. And quite honestly, he had doubled up. He was playing guitar, second guitar, um, and um, singing backgrounds and tour managing. So I'm kind of looking at this whole you know process in Nashville, like, well, you can do more than one thing. Right. So I kind of went, well, you know. I guess I would be interested in something like that. Brian came to me because I was always covering for little things uh, with uh, on Brinson's schedule. If he had something, uh, I would be the next guy to take Brian and represent and stand and kind of, you know, hang on a second. Okay, next. You start with the meet and greets. <laughs> you know, right. if you handle the social element in the meet and greets, then they – you know, can you kind of graduate from that? Now you're talking, okay, well, you go do settlement or whatever like that. These things started to become really natural to me. It's like, well, I'd rather be doing this stuff than sitting in the hotel room. That killed me. But, you know, not to segue, but I mean, that's what it's about is like, what do you do with this free time? Mm-hmm. I decided to exercise. I decided right. to you know, really get in shape. And Brian and I bonded on that. Mm. So I introduced him to... <laughs> to what? Running. Okay. I mean, uh, we. I just said, look, you got to get out. 
and work your lungs and things like that. He had um, started to have, you know, a couple of the issues, you know, where he felt like he wasn't, you know, able to support as much. And I'm like, it's oxygen, man. It's about the ability to, you know, have have your um, lungs powerful and your diaphragm and everything like that. And you use that when you run. So we would go on some of the greatest runs. I mean, it would yeah. really, it was like, he's like, man, this is, you know, spiritual. And I'm like, right. yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So we would work out and, you know, do, um, do mini workups. And there's a great story. For, <laughs> yeah. Brian. Sorry, Brian. <laughs> no, he's um, not Brian. Um, so, uh, Brian made me, pr- he made me promise that we were going to work out tomorrow. So you're looking at tomorrow. Tomorrow's like, doesn't cost you anything, man. Yep. Yeah, we'll do it tomorrow. So I get up and I'm like, all right, bro, I got the runner coming at 10 o'clock and we're out of here. We'll come back, do sound check, grab lunch um, and that. And he's like, and he was sitting in the front lounge with a little blankie and in his underwear because we all sleep on the bus. We get yep. up and Brian liked to sleep in his Tidy whities Right. So, uh... Let's <laughs> do a lot of us, by the way. <laughs> and, uh... I'm so sorry. This There's a little tasteless element about this story. Just... Oh, excellent. Um... <laughs> so, uh, he looked at me and went, Nah. Nah. I'm not... Forget it. And I had arranged a runner. These people had gone out of their way to get somebody's sister to take us to the... Right. You know, we gave them tickets to the show to get into this health club... Man, <laughs> he kept saying no and watching, you know, kind of looking up at the TV, you know, fresh out of bed, you know, kind of maybe not quite ready to have a conversation about it. So I'm like going, we're going. He's like, there's nothing you can do to get me up. I had a little bit of an indigestion. Did you? <laughs> it wasn't. What happened? wasn't feeling... You weren't feeling good? Really well. Uh-oh. What happened? It was like perfect timing. Yeah. So I'm standing there in the front lounge, and I went, really? Um, and all of a sudden, I felt better. Oh, you released some <laughs> sort of noxious gas. I'm so bomb. sorry. This is tasteless. In no, an interview, it's but, wonderful. Um, part of who we are. And Brian, uh, Brian was like, ah! <laughs> Got up. motivation? Got up, threw the tire, uh, threw the covers off. I blocked him from going back in the back of the bus. Right. So all he had was like four feet to the front of the you know driver's uh, mm-hmm. area, and he could not get away from what was in the room. Yeah. So he ran off the bus in his tidy whiteies. In his tidy whiteies. Oh. And there were about thirty fans oh, no. just hoping, no. praying. Or an opportunity to see or meet Brian White. Oh, and boy. they got their wish, but a little and bit more. Was wow. <laughs> so, this before YouTube or social media? Yeah, it, but luckily uh, we were not yet on that uh, on that, on that train. train. But mm. um, that is one of the funniest things that I've ever seen. And needless to say, we worked out that day. I bet you did. Yeah, we did. And he, that was the start of things to come because he knew... <laughs> You were the motivator in one way <laughs> or another. So your relationship with Brian changed over the years from drummer to tour, tour manager, manager yep. to to confidant right. to brother. Yeah. You guys really over those 15 years went well, through that whole thing. 
I've never, I've, I've never seen somebody um, really care that much um, about somebody they didn't know uh, because of uh, the way that the the relationship progressed. Mm. He was instantly like a caring, like, well, how do you feel? Are you comfortable? I mean, this is the artist. This isn't a manager. This isn't a go-to. This, That's who like, Brian is. Well, you know, and yeah. he told me, he said, uh, I don't know anybody else that would have got on a plane to come to Nashville to try out for something like this from L.A., you know, on just a one phone call. And he immediately opened his heart to me. And mm -hmm. I, I, um, I learned that, uh, you know, to, when I find people like that in my life, I hang on to them. Mm. I just do. So yeah. I do everything I can to keep them in my life, in my life. So 15 years go by the, the, the gig ends, right? You move back to LA. Mm -hmm. What's happening in your career at that point? Is this, when you when you are done with a long-standing gig like that, what's the process to letting people know, hey, I moved back? What's that all about? You know, um, it kind of, luckily for me, it was a natural, like, uh, I'm back in town. The same guys I was working with before had either grown up or uh, become uh, more dominant because you know when you're a fledgling you hang out with other fledglings mm -hmm. and then they progress and all of a sudden hey i i've progressed with not even really being part of it um and i i was able to work a lot with chris abraham again um he started a what would be um a uh, library type of a um studio si uh, situation where we would do music and it would sit and be able to be accessed and used for industrial films, mm. um, cinema, any any and all uh, uses. Another part of the music business right. where you make yeah. some money. Yeah. So most of my work was recording. I started then uh, producing. I had people calling me and saying, look, um, I put a studio in the new place that I had and I started uh, really going to work on Pro Tools. Um, <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. My my, I got my feet wet. I mean, one of the hugest influences for me and motivators in my life is your brother Ricky. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, and you know, I mean, meeting him here when I was a kid, and then all of a sudden I get a chance to work with him and play with him. And he had come out and was staying with me mm -hmm. um, during rehearsal times for different acts like Stevie Nicks and you know different things that he was doing. So I um. I started, I was just learning Pro Tools and I'd worked a deal with a friend of mine that's like, look, I'll produce and play on your record for $0 if you get me the gear I need to do it. Mm. So I started, you know, I got a, a print, we went and got a G4 Mac and uh, a Pro Tools Digi 001 rig and I had Yamaha provided me with a um, 01V. It's the, oh, yeah. yeah, nice little board. So I was tracking drums and, you know, uh, doing this record. And then Ricky came out and I'm like, I was wor just working on grooves all the time. And, you know, you didn't always need to say, hey, let's work for work to get done with our group. Right. You know, we'd be kind of kicking something around and all of a sudden Ricky would be sitting on the couch <laughs> and I'd be, I've been working with, uh, you know, drum grooves and it was called Acid. Do you remember mm -hmm. the program Acid? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. And I'd develop it and change it a little bit. And Ricky would walk in and go, you ready? And I'd have the keyboard up. And he'd go, wow. 
you know, he'd come up with these little lines. And I just started adding people and adding players. Yeah. And he came up, he came to me after that and he said, you're producing my record. See? <laughs> he dubbed you a producer. He as went, he did he, for me. I just went, okay, that's not scary at all. When yeah. you have someone you idolize say, hey, you're in charge of something that's really important. And I right. mean, I wasn't going to drop that but, ball. But you, yeah, you stepped up. Yeah. That was that a little ball. motivation as well. Yeah. He gave you ownership in that, and he did the same for me. And and you had two choices. You could either said no, no, that's yeah. not for me. But your personality is such where you was like, yeah, let's do this. Yeah. Well, so I mean, could, come on. If you're looking for opportunity, and you fumble and fall when it's handed to you, right. uh, uh. Right. I mean, you better be ready. You better have your gloves on and pine tar on your hands make sure you're not going to drop what's given to you man right so you know? now you're producing records starting with my brothers and this gentleman who gave you the gear mm-hmm. um through that weren't you working as well didn't ricky introduce you to some folks in the david sanborn camp yes okay. um and that's the greatest thing is um we ended up you know doing some uh stuff together uh a band called the side guys yeah Ricky uh, was involved in that, and I had played because I um, I was just a very uh, a, a student. I, I loved getting handed complex issues and coming through and making it and smoothing, and big problems were kind of my specialty. So I had gotten a call from Ricky, and he said, look, um, we need a drummer uh, on a Sanborn thing. Uh, it happened to be at Fenway. Um, and we really don't have the opportunity to rehearse. So you're going to have to go to school on this. Um, are you up for it? And I'm like, I'm all, I'm half prepared. I've been listening to David Samuel right. my whole life and dreaming about it. So you yeah, absolutely. So he uh, gave me that opportunity and I went in and, uh, I remember you guys going, Hey, let's go hang by the pool. I'm like, sorry, I got to go play this stuff again. Mm-hmm. So it was downstairs in your basement one time. When I was uh, getting ready to go out and actually you had that drum set set up and I was like, okay, well, but I, you know, I did that and in doing so was able to impress some people. The the show went off extremely well. Right. Um, Richard Patterson, another guy I owe a huge debt of gratitude, uh, took notice that, you know, hey, this guy came, he had his stuff together and that's the most important thing you can do is don't misrepresent your talent by unpreparedness. It's like, right. look, be, you know, be over-prepared, you know, mm-hmm. and then walk in. That makes the hang better, doesn't oh it? Oh, my God. Then you're relaxed mm-hmm. because there will be a curveball. You didn't get some piece of information. Right. So, um, you know, save your brain for that. Not just barely hanging on. I'm going to do the least amount of work thing. So when I did the Sanborn thing, then Richard Patterson called me and said, hey, we need somebody to do the Boz, uh, Skaggs gig. Uh, can you go to school on that? There's not going to be a rehearsal. Oh, man. And, I mean, I walked in, and you know who was on that gig? Hmm. Greg, Phil, and Gaines. Yeah. Drew Zing. Um, Richard, who I respected greatly. I mean, just a cast of characters, not to mention Boz is looking at you, and you're sitting in Jeff Procaro's chair. Yeah. Drummers, hello. Yeah. <laughs> that is, that's a moment. Right. And these are the kind of things that you came back to L.A. for, and these are the things 
that were happening. You met a girl. You ended up getting married to Galen, right? I'm mm-hmm. fast forwarding because we're almost up on our hour already. Okay. When did you take an uproot from LA and go to Las Vegas? Well, interesting story. Um, I had cultivated that studio scenario. Uh, I found a perfect place in LA to have a studio. My workout room, mm-hmm. um, I was close enough to the beach. It was in the Redondo Beach area. I loved that place. Yeah, I, I, and um, I had I met my wife. I was living there with Jamie, uh, and he moved out, and I met my wife, um, and she moved in. Uh, we got married. She got pregnant, and she was about some six or so months pregnant, and um, it was... Uh, a moment where we said, you know, this floor could use a little bit of love. We're going to have a baby crawling on it, and um, it would be really much better for it to be a ceramic, nice-looking floor. And I had made arrangements with the uh, the landlord before that to put a fence up so we could have a little hot tub in the backyard. And he came over and he said, you do good work. Uh, I said, well, I've you know, learned a lot about this stuff in my, from my past, and I've done it before, and he's like, "Wow, oh, anything you need to do, let me know." Because uh, I he I paid, I put it up, and he actually took the material cost off the rent, wow. so it was a fifty-fifty kind of deal. And I I specialized in charming people in that way. It's like, hey, well, if I do this, would you do that? So I called him, and uh, my wife is sitting right there from me to you away, and I said, "Hey, Mike." Um, I just wondered if you would mind uh, working out a deal on this floor. I'd love to lay down some nice ceramic tile. I got a baby coming and everything. He goes, yeah, I've been meaning to call you. Uh, I'm going to bulldoze that house and put three condominiums on it. Um, so you got 30 days. And my wife is right there with a belly, right? And I'm going, so is that a no on the tile? <laughs> <laughs> so what happened is I... Uh, I, I hung up the phone, started this conversation, and held her together for about, you know, three days. Yeah. And um, I called my friend Paul Peterson, who, <laughs> for whatever reason, you just would always just have like, well, you should move to Vegas. I did say that, didn't I? Yeah. Sorry about and, that. Uh, Actually, no, I'm not sorry because that worked out good. It, and I said, you know, we were having trouble looking at rental places, and, and the housing market was just re- – Ridiculously high. It was the top. In LA. Like, yeah. Yeah. Everywhere. But, you know, in LA especially. And so it was like, well, look, we're not going to be able to stay here, find what we need. And I was the tour manager for Brian White at the time living in LA. Mm-hmm. I was able to do that from there, tour manager, drummer. Right. So I just needed an airport. And your logic made sense. It was like, go to a place where there's other work. So when Brian's not working, you can branch over into the Vegas scene. And right. so it's exactly what I did. I, you know, I overpaid by Vegas standards and the values did go down, but I was in Las Vegas. Right. And a tour manager going to the airport, flying out, meeting everybody at the, at the venue um, and taking care of business and flying home. So it worked out great. And then that progressed. I don't know if you want me to continue on that line. Yeah. But, uh, I want to know how... Your relationship with the Osmonds began. That's what I want to know. Well, 
in in Las Vegas, um, another person I'd say that was very key and I owe a great deal of gratitude to is Jerry Lopez. Mm-hmm. Jerry is um, far and away one of the most talented people I've ever seen or heard in my life. Um, and just soulful to no end as a human being and as a musician. So um, I was lucky enough to um, introduce myself to him in this process. We bought a house. We're living there. I said, hey, you know, I'm available for local work. And he said, well, have you ever done any shows? And I said, no. I'm really not a show drummer, but um, I am, you know, I'm a student. I love to learn. And uh, if you got a book or two, throw them at me. I mean, I'm not asking you for the gig. Just throw me the what you would throw a guy if he was going to be the next guy in your in your roster. So he threw me a couple books, and I went home, and I learned them. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting at home with knowledge of these shows. And sooner or later, the need came up to go and cover a show called Hats. I think it was – I might get this wrong, but I think it was Carol King had written – all the music for this show called Hats. So I'm in this show thing and I'm subbing for Gabriel Falcone, the drummer that was um, on something else that night. And uh, Jerry was on the gig and he just put his hand out and he said, man, if that's what I can expect, you're in. So I didn't know what that meant, but that was great. And I'm doing my thing and all of a sudden I get a phone call. And he said, look, um, I've got the ability to put you, um, you know, in front of some people here that there's a show coming into town. I can't talk about who it is yet, but um, they've got some specific needs. And I'm wondering how you fit in. Do you uh, have any knowledge of Pro Tools? And I'm like, I produce records. Okay. Do you read? And I'm like, yeah, I read well. Well, that's obvious because I did hats and he said, I just didn't know, you know, how you had managed that gig. And I said, well, the charts were right there i was able to read those and so he said well i'm i'm only going to submit two people you and another guy um but i'm going to put an asterisk by your name because they need somebody that you know it's going to be on stage you're up front you're not in a pit band so it could be a situation where they take my musical recommendation and you get picked by your photo (laughs) you know what i mean so um i got chosen out of the stack of two to be in the Donnie Marie show. Right. Wow. Yeah. And I didn't have to play a note because that's where Jerry's recommendation comes in. Mm -hmm. They just go, okay, if you say so, there it is. And, uh, I thank, I I need to thank him. Yeah. You know, because that was 12 years of work. 12 years with the Osmonds. With the Osmonds at, the Flamingo. Five days a week. Five nights a week. And uh, health insurance, ladies and gentlemen, something musicians don't know how to spell or don't know what it is. Right. Um, right. So right. thank God for the Musicians Union for being involved in that. And, you know, they work pretty hard out there. Um, Keith and everybody over at the Musicians Union. So trying to take care of their players. So you're doing this show with the Osmonds, but while you're doing the show, you're also being wise with some of the choices that you're making financially you have your background like we said in houses and uh, redoing houses right right yeah renovating is the word i was looking for but it wasn't coming to my little brain here 
you started doing that in Vegas. Is that right? So you, you've got a side business. There, there's your side hustle. Right. What happened is that, you know, there was um, a re- the market recessed, and I was looking at uh, – I owed twice as much of my house that was currently worth. And something about, you know, losing um, a battle – makes me that much more aggressive. If I'm losing at something, I try to turn it around somewhere or another. It's like, okay, I bought one at the top. I bought it if I buy one at the bottom. Right. I bought if I, you know, buy a couple at the bottom. So I generated as much income as I could, bought houses that were really needed a lot of love. Mm-hmm. Um, and I ended up, you know, stacking one on top of the other and then taking the rental income and then getting the next one and getting the next one to where I had six houses, you know. But you put your heart and soul and sweat yeah. equity well, into I, these plays. These aren't tur- turn the key and it's just, no, oh, no, this is, ooh. No, you but walk in and you, go, oh boy. The thing to think in terms of the world savvy is if you've got a good thing, then that's it. No, if you got a good thing, build on the good thing, make a great thing. So mm-hmm. I had five nights a week. I didn't have to sweat it. I didn't have to be there till seven thirty at night. I walk in. I got thirty minutes of prep time. Go put my clothes on. I'm done at nine. You right. know what I mean? So um, it just it catered to a uh, a lot of opportunity for me to have my days. And my days were productive and either in recording studio. Right. Or I'd go and I'd work on a property. And, you know, I got a baby at this point. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about the future. I'm thinking about, well, what happens when this gig ends? Right. You know, so. Being prepared for that. So smart. And that, I think that's a great word for all those musicians out there. It's okay to have other things that you're doing to generate one good career. And that's what's so fascinating about you. Let's move fast forward into the last couple of years with the Donnie and Marie show. You became, you started writing some dialogue. Yeah. In the very end, you ended up doing, you were the, not creative director, or were you, musical director for Marie. Right. And you were uh, advancing shows, tour managing. Production manager. Production manager. That's the title I was looking for. And that is... Pretty involved. Basically, when I got the gig with Donnie and Marie, Donnie walked right over to me, kind of gave me a once once over, had a short conversation, and he handed me the computer. And I said, what's this? <laughs> he goes, you're going to be running the show. And I kind of looked over at the musical director, and I'm like, you know, is this cool with you? I mean, um, and he actually was fine with it because it's a big responsibility. Right. It's... <clears throat> And, you know, let's face it, drummers, um, we start and stop a lot of shows. So it's a natural progression to think, well, if I'm counting it off, well, I'm counting it off by hitting a button. And you think it's, like I said, natural progression of thinking. And this button's running lighting camera angles. Everything was everything. Everything was chained uh, to the computer system. Right. So we were running, at that time, Cubase. Um, and then the SMPTE code was triggering mm-hmm. other things. So <clears throat> it was um, it was a big responsibility, but I didn't hesitate. I right. just went, okay. What I didn't know is that it was going to put me in more close contact with Donnie and Marie. I'd have to sit with them and do timing, you know, as far as like starting and uh, stuff like that. What 
what the keywords were. You know what I mean? I'd have to know the dialogue of the show. I had to know the pacing of the show. I'd have to know, okay, is this a pregnant pause? Do you want it? You know, do you want, do you want a fall off? Are we, are we going on applause? Are we going on timing? Are we going on, you know, um, you know, a spot on the stage? So I started to mass that knowledge and um, the character of each of those artists. So as I did that, I was in their, you know, closer good graces. There was friendships that cultivated with uh, Donnie and but with Hauteur and Marie and Marie's manager. And, and um, it ended up being one of those things where I knew more about the show than anybody else on that stage. Um, and sometimes sure. even more than, than the musical director because I, I was in a meeting based on my job, right. you know. So I became that go-to guy. Um, and if there was a problem, I was called in. You know what I mean? Because I would possibly have a solution. I sat there. I knew the cockpit. I knew what was wrong. I knew what went on. And I had ideas on how to fix it. And that's basically Production 101. So you were given the responsibility of production manager for Marie's things. That's kind of where you left off in Vegas. Mm -hmm. You decide to move home. Now, granted, we're leaving out so many cool things that you and I were able to do together still being brothers and me watching you, first of all, my relationship with Donnie and Marie was so fun uh, for me earlier in the 90s. As and then, and then I got to watch you do it and hang out with those guys the last 15 years. But then you introduced me to Debbie Gibson. You and I traveled the world, go diving, hanging out. We traveled right. to Australia with St. Paul and the Minneapolis Funk All-Stars. But you ultimately come home and the phone, you, you've been here a month, a month and a half. The phone doesn't stop ringing, does it? It doesn't. And to mention Debbie, you, you, you gotta you gotta just say what a wonderful experience God, working her. with her. My little, our little sister. Yeah, she right? is. There's massive love. Yeah, and uh, it's not girl. restricted to my heart. I I think of her in in and it's just my heart's connected to how wonderful of a person and how talented she really is. Mm -hmm. I mean, she is sits down at a piano and you're like going, well, there's a whole nother career there if you want it. Right. I mean, but, um, uh, being her musical director and, you know, being involved with that and her energy and just, uh, it was one of the highlights and I owe her so much. Um, still to this day, we just get on the phone and laugh. And even if it's, we don't have business, it's like, what's we, going on? We called her from the, uh, uh, from the baseball game, baseball game the other day. And she was <laughs> howling. We just had some, I think we sent her funny pictures, you know, yeah. all that. By the way, that some of those are very disturbing images. Thank you. Thank you very it's much. Just, Joe. Oh, I'm quite happy with likes, that. Likes his Snapchat. Well, uh, first of all, yeah. Snapchat. Don't let me have Snapchat. <laughs> I have to say, uh, having you back home for me selfishly is, so cool because there's so many there's so f few people that I want to be around and mm. you know time is so precious and the people that you choose to share that time with that, that is uh, you know those people are so important to you and I love having you home you're my brother and now we yeah. can get back on the workout regiment with and we have three more minutes on this broadcast we better talk a little bit about what we've been doing in the last 20 years of our relationship is in regards to workouts and what we do on the road and, and how does being in shape relate to what you do as a drummer and as a way to keep your head clear? Oh, it's just, it's massive. The place that it, it occupies for me 
my connection um, to my instrument, my connection to the community that I'm visiting. I mean, don't go sit in a hotel and wait for the show. That means you've seen a dumpster, whatever color seats there are in the arena, and catering. And that's the, uh, what. So, what did you think of Syracuse? Blue seats. Right. Uh, bad dump, catering. Dump, yeah, bad catering. And uh, no, I'm not saying that for real. But I mean, no, uh, the dumpster, you know, was about a four. I mean, it wasn't real ripe. Right. So don't do that to yourself. <laughs> Connect. I mean, especially when you're somewhere you've never been. Uh, you know, you show up and you have a story. I mean, I remember people coming up to me and enlightening themselves by asking me what I did. Yeah. I mean, if you're if you're the one that people go, so what did you see? And I'd be like, oh, there's a great, a great pastry shop right down here about, oh, about a mile and a half. Um, you'll see a park and you take a left and there's a running trail. If you follow that, you come to a, you know, a crosswalk, go over that and the pastry shop, man, to die for. And there's a little area there. You're telling people about places mm-hmm. they'll never see unless they leave their room. Right. And being healthy, I mean, there's a hundred million reasons to be healthy. But, I mean, if you're going to be on the road and you're going to be performing, don't be up there looking like you're going to die because you didn't do anything but sit there and wait for the show. And now you're sweating out. And, and, you know, stay away from, you know, too much sauce or too much of this and that. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, whatever you do, you do. But... Do what's necessary to, to get back to at least flatline. You know, mm-hmm. if you take it down, take it up. And ec- running was always a take it up. You know, give my body a boost right. and uh, have an experience. This is not something that you're going to be going. You know, I want to go back there. I'm mean, when you're 75 years old, and it's not going to feel the same. You're not going to be able to run. You're not going to be able to do these things. Yeah, do them. Now, when you can, yeah. right? You know, that's the deal. That's just it, brother man. This is your career is so fascinating to me and so inspiring. I'm sure to all of my listeners, it's it's never just one thing that we do. We put them all together to make one good one. And you are one of the funniest, you know what, <laughs> I've ever met in my life. And it's just so great that you're back home and. Thank you for, for taking an hour out of your life. Oh, man, life this is to- a pleasure. I don't know that I'm a big star and you're going to get a lot of watchers out of this. You might have to offer free applesauce or something. <laughs> get, get them, to, you know, some kind of a special offer. But uh, it's my, I personally, I owe so much and feel so good about our friendship, our yeah. relationship. The um, not only opening doors, but opening your heart, your family, you know, um, just being able to come over here and just walk in and feel home. Yeah. You know, it's my... Well, you are, bro. You are family. It's my other home and my other family, and um, I, I, I wouldn't change it for the world. It's the best thing about being home again is being able to just say, drop by. Like the other day, I said, hey, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> come on over. So he's sitting at the pool, and I just walked in and sat down, and I went, I think this is going to work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is the guy who, my daughter just bought a house two miles from here. This is the guy that gets a call from my daughter to, uh, to try to explain to her how to mud the cracks in her ceiling. <laughs> he said, 
I'm coming over right now. And this guy, I didn't even see the house yet. You actually physically saw my daughter's house before oh. I did. But that's who this guy is. Well, um, I love you. Thank you for being on episode 45. And, of course, I'm coming over to the good camera to say, ladies and gentlemen, that is episode 45. He's on my lap. He's on my lap. <laughs> Have a good one. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Ow! <laughs> Music on the Run was hosted by yours truly, St. Paul Peterson. Edited and produced by my buddy, Davide Razzo. Artist Relations by Owen Sartori. Video editing by Tanner Montague. And a very special thanks to the people who financially support this podcast. And remember, brotherhood is for life. <laughs>